Daniel chapter 6. This is God's word. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. And these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or the decree you put in writing. He still, he still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. And the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not heard me because I was found innocent in, in his sight nor have I done anything wrong before you, your majesty. 
the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men brought, who, had brought, who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth, he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. This is God's word. Thank you, Justin, for that wonderful reading. Well, we come to the last week of what I have termed, well, termed last week as the prologue of the book of Daniel, the part that's kind of introducing us to everything we need to know. And then on Rivendell, in chapters 7 to 12, we're going to kind of use Daniel 1 to 6 as kind of a lens by which we interpret what we're reading. And so what we're taking away from this section, while it's also really valuable and helpful on its own terms, uh, it's going to be really key for what we talk about at Rivendell as we start to read some things that maybe we're a little bit less comfortable attempting to understand on our own. Uh, after three years, I can tell you, I still sit there and think this stuff is pretty weird. Uh, we're at the final court tale in the book. We've seen a lot happen in the life of Daniel and his companions in exile. We've seen the attempts of kings to position themselves as lords over them. Uh, and we've seen those attempts fail. Great kings have fallen and been humbled by the God of heaven. And today, our text completes the theme of sovereignty over kings by taking us in a slightly different direction. What if the king is not antagonistic towards God's people? What if the king is friendly? How do the people of God respond then? How about I start by praying for us? Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray now that as we consider it, that you would work in our hearts, you'd help us to know and trust you more. Father, help us to see that you are the only one worth being loyal to in this world. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Darius, he's the king of the Medes. It's the second empire uh, that we've seen so far in Daniel, and it's quite a short-lived one. But for a brief time in Daniel, we see this new empire in power. Verse 1, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, to give you an idea of a satrap in the Persian Empire, satraps were like governors. So they kind of ruled over large sections and administrated them. Um, they were often seen as rivals to the king of Persia and of Media. 
Uh, and these guys, to give you an idea of kind of how powerful they are, um, there was a satrap who was responsible for Egypt in the Persian Empire. So these guys are pretty significant when it comes to how authoritative they are. Uh, Daniel is one of three administrators who are in charge of these 120 satraps. Uh, Daniel couldn't ask for much more, right? And now he's in line to take over charge of the whole kingdom under the king. Darius is a great delegator. He's just going to delegate his job to Daniel, and then he can go and leave or whatever. Uh, it clearly wasn't a fluke, right, with Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is highly competent and distinguishes himself above all others. The problem, though, is like in previous instances, this makes him a target of the advisors. Daniel is in an inter interesting position, right, where the king is friendly towards him, supports him, thinks he's great, and that's because he is. But, verse 4, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Daniel's one of those people that kind of come off as being perfect and that kind of annoys the people around them, right? Um, I've been trying to think, I was thinking about people in our society who are kind of like this um, and someone who I love is Ash Barty, right? She's an inc incredible young woman. Um, she was a professional tennis player, rose through the ranks very quickly and then took a bit of time off to care for her mental health. So that's kind of a likable element of her personality there. During that break, she signed for the Brisbane Heat WBBL team and then played professional cricket. Um, got bored of that, decided to play tennis again, went back to tennis and won Wimbledon, the French Open and the Australian Open and retired at 24 after 112 weeks, I think, as world number one. Second woman ever to retire at world number one. Uh, she, if you go to her social media account, is remarkably down to earth and normal. And that is so annoying, right? I couldn't find anything wrong with her, anything that I kind of can't like about her as a person. Uh, another person who's like this is Hugh Jackman, right? The guy's a triple threat. He can do everything. There's no way of stopping him. He's also, and I don't mind saying this, pretty attractive dude. I'm comfortable enough for myself. Hugh Jackman is an objectively attractive dude and also seems to be a pretty nice guy as well. Super annoying. Um, I think a lot of us in our lives kind of have a friend who's like this. I was cursed with two. My two best friends, John and Ollie, are both perfect people, and it's the worst. They're both really great at school, uh, they did really well out of school, but they're also lovely. They're not prideful. Uh, they're super nice. Um, and these are, this is probably the nicest I've ever been about them in a sermon analogy. But that's super annoying for me, because I was constantly spent my life being compared to the two of them. Um, luckily for me, they both married women who are better than them, and so now they're experiencing what it was like to be me for a period of their life. Um, but Daniel's one of these dudes, right? The advisors want to take him down, but they can't. There's nothing that they can find on him. He's too much of a goody two-shoes to pin anything on. He never does anything wrong, and it's annoying. But then they realize his commitment to his faith is something that they can use against him. And this is interesting, right? And once again, it shows us something about Daniel. His firm commitment to his faith 
is so well known that the men who know him can set him up and he will do what they expect. Verse 6, so these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may, Darius, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, governors have all agreed, well not all of them, because Daniel's not there, have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce that decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being other than the king for the next 30 days will be thrown into the lion's den. And so King Darius put the decree in writing. So we're left with a situation. Darius has made a decree that we know Daniel can't and won't follow. Significantly, once again, the king's made a major decision and who isn't there? Daniel. Even as one of his greatest advisors isn't there, the king makes this incredibly restrictive decree and so once again makes a mistake because he doesn't listen to our man, Daniel. And so what will Daniel do in response? Now, I'm not sure what ha if what happens next surprised any of us by this point, right? We know how these stories go. We've had five stories of Daniel and his companions. We know how they respond in these situations. We know how he behaves. But there's an interesting difference here that we need to consider. Daniel, Darius is good to Daniel. He's already elevated Daniel. He holds him in a high regard. Daniel can do good work from this authoritative position. Maybe he can just let this one go. I mean, it's only for a short time, right? Only about 30 days. Maybe it's worth continuing in a good situation with a king who's supportive of him. And his new promotion as well would mean he'd be able to influence more things for the benefit of God's people who are in exile. I mean, he just has to keep his praying a secret just for a little bit to achieve that. Or well, verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Daniel has a habit of prayer, right? Three times a day, he goes to his room, he prays with the windows are open towards Jerusalem. Um, I don't know what habits you have, but you kind of developed around different things you do in your life. Um, I for a long time, wasn't very good at getting up early in the morning, but I need to, so I have time to do things in my day. And so I started setting an alarm every day to wake me up early. I made the mistake of choosing a song that I really like. Now I hate that song. Get up early, but now I hate something that I used to love. So, I mean, you can decide if you think that's a good trade-off. Uh, my friend Shippy prays whenever he gets to Rockdale Station. He's, I'm from the Shire, we get the Illawarra line in. And, um, when you, when, if you catch the, um, the train with him, he's done it so much, it's kind of like Pavlov's dogs. Um, when, when he gets to Rockdale Station and you'll be chatting to him, his head just kind of goes down and he realises what he's doing and kind of wakes up again. It's a good habit to have, I think. Um, for me, I'm more simple. I just try and read the Bible when I have breakfast. Um, eating, I kind of associate with reading the Bible. Um, Daniel doesn't do anything different. He has a habit. Daniel praying three times a day in his room is kind of like reading the Bible at breakfast. Daniel responds by going about his normal pattern of worship. He doesn't do anything provocative. He simply continues as usual. Because for him, to follow the edict is to affirm Darius is the one who should be worshipped over his God. And so it's an edict that he simply ignores. He doesn't make a show of it. He simply passively resists by not breaking his habit. 
The windows are already open. He doesn't open them to make a show. And so Daniel is an example to us of a faithful commitment to God. Just like the three men, they weren't provocative, right? They simply refused to bow down and accepted the fate of the furnace. Daniel follows the laws of the land that he's in, but he doesn't in the case that the law requires him to recognize the king as being Lord over the true Lord. And that's the key element. In each of these situations, the king attempts to establish themselves above the God of the companions and of Daniel, and they simply refuse to accept that. Daniel doesn't take a step forward in attack, but he refuses to be forced to take a step back, even when he could easily have justified just a little bit of compromise for the benefit that would have come from his position. So what's going to happen to Daniel? Well, surely you think he's going to be okay, right? I mean, the king's going to understand. He's the friend of the king, one of his most important advisors. Well, verse 11, then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and, asked God, and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? You like the tone of that question? Well, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. The king is trapped. He's trapped himself trapped by his own laws that he made. But actually, I don't buy it, right? I don't buy that he's completely trapped. He is the king. If he really wanted to, I think he could have saved him. And we know this because he spent the whole day trying to think of a way to do that in which that would be accepted by people. It just would have been really hard for him politically. He could have done something, surely, but he's weak. While he's friendly to Daniel and seeks his benefit in many ways, he is ultimately still self-centered, out for himself, caring most about securing his position. I mean, that's what led to him going along with the edict in the first place, right? As an opportunity for him to elevate himself to the status of God in the empire. And so he lets it happen. We kind of have this weird section where Darius essentially says, sorry man, good luck. Okay, yeah, thanks, dude. Super helpful. Uh, Daniel's taken. He's thrown into the lion's den. And again, we see the king in bed. So remember Nebuchadnezzar? There were two, two sections, chapter 2 and chapter 4. We saw Nebuchadnezzar in bed. We kind of threw the curtain, destroyed any sense of kind of royalty that was there. We see him in bed. And he's walking, he's riding around. He can't sleep. He's not eating. Turns out that Darius is just as weak as Belshazzar and just as ineffective as Nebuchadnezzar. Now in the morning, he runs to the den and what does he find? Well, Daniel, which might not surprise us, but did surprise him, was completely fine. Just like the men in the furnace do not even have singed hair on their head, Daniel is completely untouched by the lions. But the men who had accused Daniel, well, they're thrown in. And we get a dramatic contrast, the same kind of hyperbole as we had in chapter 3. The mighty men, remember, who tied up the three companions, they're not even in the furnace, but those men are consumed by the fire. The accusers of Daniel uh, are dead before they even hit the ground. 
The servants of God are completely unharmed. And the serv- those who serve other kings and work against God, well, they're obliterated. In the end, the situation is restored, and Daniel is again in a position of great power where he can do the work of God and influence things for God's people, and he didn't have to compromise himself to get there. But remember, just like with the three men, he wouldn't have compromised himself anyway. It wasn't that he knew that God would save him for sure, but he knew that there was no point in him attaching his banner to anyone else. And we know from the book of Daniel that working with those who rule over us, especially if we're promoting and advising good governance, is a fine thing. So those of you who work for government can keep your jobs. It's great. Socially, though, and in many other ways, we will find ourselves to struggle. The fact is that most of us in our lives won't ever kind of have our lives on the line in the same way that they do in the book of Daniel. But financially, maybe, socially, our opportunities at work, maybe when different policies are brought in, you have to kind of behave in a different way. There are different ways that you're challenged. Uh, on social media, we often feel like we're put on trial for our beliefs, misrepresented in what we believe. Notice that there are some similarities to the tensions of things that do happen in Daniel. And we will be tempted to side with leaders who are nice to us even helpful towards our cause. We might see the opportunity, and, and these opportunities in themselves may have godly aims and potential outcomes. It's okay to work with people. It's not okay to compromise for them. Daniel could have been sneaky. He could have closed the windows. But that wasn't what he normally did. His faith was well known. He could have hidden it. He didn't rub it in anyone's face, but it was known. Is your faith known? But Daniel doesn't do this because he wants to make a point. Daniel doesn't advocate at any point that we should take stands for publicity or to make a point. Daniel does it simply because it is right. Because his God is in charge, because the only one with any power to bring about his kingdom is the Lord of the heavens. He doesn't believe that compromising can help him, that it can bring about any benefit. So that temptation is removed. And since we already well and truly know by now that death is a pretty useless threat against Daniel and his companions, there's only one way that things can go at this point. And our passage today gives us the final piece of the puzzle for understanding this. The evil kings cannot kill Daniel and his companions. And Darius, our friendly, although foolish king, cannot save him. In spite of his desire to save Daniel, he is unable to do this. He cannot be relied upon for Daniel's life. Even if Daniel chose to go with this king, his protection means nothing. And this is a message for all followers of God who face hard choices, especially those under oppression. A new ruler, leader may come along and he may be kind to you or she may be kind to you, even supportive. Do not be tempted to find your relief. Do not be tempted to find your salvation in these leaders. Because while it may seem like a good solution, they are as powerless to determine the fate of God's people 
as the persecutors who may have come before them. Another example might be uh, that in today's world, I think Christians love making mascots out of atheists who are nice to us. They get invited onto Christian podcasts. We kind of interview them in Christian magazines. We hold them out as a defense when people attack the rationalism of our faith. Um, and I can get why that's a comfort. Right? I found it comforting too at times. There's nothing wrong with liking that they are supportive of us. But we surely can't and shouldn't be relying on them to be the ones who strengthen our faith. Because the basis of our endurance is not the world's acceptance of us. It is a recognition of who our God is and what he's done for us in Jesus, who himself said that Christians would be hated. To hold on to him should mean that nothing can overwhelm the hope that we have of that. These guys are sometimes helpful, but they're not an authority. Um, an example of this in my life, I used to really love debating the Christian faith. Um, I don't know if it's because I like, was an atheist who became a Christian, and so I kind of still had that fire in me, um, but I really enjoyed kind of doing these debates. Um, I don't like them so much now. I tend to, in arguments, kind of just wait for someone to get tired and then go and have coffee. Um, but I used to really love it. And during these debates, I'd often get stumped by questions. Uh, and in one case, someone asked me this really difficult question, and I, think, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was about suffering. Uh, And as they asked me, um, I didn't really have an answer. And my friend Tim stepped in and gave a really great answer to this question that was really helpful. Um, But Tim had kind of learnt that that's what Christians believed, but Tim himself was an atheist. And so when I used Tim's answer to kind of defend myself in that situation, the people who were arguing with me were like, okay, yeah, fine, like fair point. But Tim agrees with your point. And he's an atheist. So that doesn't really convince me to become a Christian at all. I was like, oh, Tim's kind of nice and stood for me there, but I can't use Tim as an authority for Christianity because he doesn't believe it, right? Tim doesn't have the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I can't use that. Daniel wants us to know that no matter the leader who is over us, no matter what the world might think of us, good or bad, we are not to let ourselves believe they are in true power. We're not to let the idea that they can give us anything in exchange for our loyalty be our reality because it is not true. You see, the point isn't about good and bad leaders in Daniel. It's it's not about good or bad leaders or people or opportunities. There's room for discussion of those things. The point is relying on the truth and not allowing yourself to believe that anyone other than the God of heaven is in charge of the outcomes for the people of God. If they are evil and we feel threatened, we know who is in charge. If they are kind to us, then awesome. But they do not have the power to save us, and we cannot put them in that position either. I want to end today from a, with a quote from a man that I greatly admire who recently passed away. Um, but I think it's relevant that he firmly believed this. This is a quote from a man called Alexei Navalny. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied, Matthew 5, 6. I've always thought that this particular commandment is more or less an instruction to activity. I think that's a great quote from a committed Christian 
who knew exactly what it meant that not compromising for the world, that compromising for the world would simply not be worth it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the interesting and difficult and wonderful things that it can teach us. And we pray today, Lord, that we would see that you are in charge, that you, the Lord of the heavens, is the only person who determines the outcomes for your people, and we trust you with it. Lord, help us to learn each day to trust you more and more with this. Sometimes it will be hard and we will be tempted to to find other ways of being saved. Father, we pray that you hold us to you even when we lean away. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.